The Golden Mike Podcast is presented by SeaDeck Marine Products. SeaDeck features non-absorbent closed-cell PE EVA blended foam that delivers the perfect combination of comfort, safety, and style. For more information, check out www.seadeck.com. That's S-E-A-D-E-K.com. Your boat deserves SeaDeck. And now, it's showtime. the official voice of Toad Water Sports for over a decade. His vocal tones have narrated the industry's biggest and most prestigious events in the world. With over 25 years of on-water experience, captivating charisma, and a command of his audience, presented by Sea Deck Marine Products, it's the Golden Mike Podcast, with the noise of the North himself, oh, yeah. Dano the Mano. Hey, hey, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to episode 137 of the Golden Mike Podcast. As always, I am the noise of the North. Oh, yeah, Dano T. Mano, and the T stands for the recording from my boathouse studio bunker. I know these times are scary right now, but I thought I'd brighten it up by giving you your well-deserved bi-monthly dose of audio sunshine. Today's episode is brought to you by SeaDeck Marine Products. Not only does SeaDeck offer custom marine flooring solutions, but also now they offer these new collaboration deck sandals with Grundon's Fishing Apparel. I hope I'm saying that right. What a great idea to use Cdex durable shock absorbent material and apply that to sandals. It's genius. Check them out at www.cdex.com and while you're there, click the custom tab and take a look at the interactive Cdex certified locator map to find the nearest Cdex certified fabricator or installer in your area. They have installers all over the world, so it doesn't matter where you're located, a certified CDEC installer will come to you and create a custom flooring job to your exact specifications. Guys, guess what? It's time to give your boat what it deserves, and your boat deserves CDEC. Well, thank you once again for listening to this. I know right now a lot of you are stuck inside without much to do, so we're going to ride this thing out together. The coronavirus pandemic has really changed everything in a profound way, and my heart goes out to all the families impacted by this terrible outbreak. Folks have lost everything from jobs to loved ones, and there's so many unknowns out there, especially right now. A group that's really struggling is uh, many of the small businesses that support this very podcast, and I know our industry was hit incredibly hard by this, and it's going to take some time before we can fully recover, but I know this community, and I know the people that run these businesses, and I know the people that buy these products, and I firmly believe that once we get through all of this uncertainty, we're all going to come together and support each other, because I'm sure at the end of the day, all of us just want to get back out on the water. And if you want to support this podcast, which is also a small business in its own right, there's an easy way for you guys to do that. 
You know I never ask for any money or anything. All I ask that you do is keep listening and share this podcast. You can do that on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, iTunes, Apple Podcast. You can also listen to all the episodes of the Golden Mike Podcast on my website, noiseofthenorth.com. So you can share links from all those places. Also, on iTunes, if you leave me a five-star review, that would be a humongous help if you hit the five stars. But if you actually write that review, it would just melt my heart so much. Also, follow the Golden Mike Podcast on Facebook and follow me personally on Instagram at DanoTMano. I got to say, I've been self-quarantining in the Boathouse studio for the last couple of weeks. And when I look out the window, there's always a bunch of people out on the lake. I'm out there. I'm doing a little paddle boarding, a little kayaking. And I know that... Uh, You guys can't stay cooped up in your house all day, so if you do go outside like on a walk or a hike or down to the lake, I ask you just go about it responsibly. We all know WSIA's Wake Responsibly Initiative, which tells us to minimize repetitive passes, keep our music at reasonable levels, and stay a safe 200 feet away from shorelines and docks. But this weekend, the WSIA also posted a new set of suggestions on their Instagram page that I wanted to share with you. They wrote that if you are on the water, please keep your boat crew to a minimum, preferably just the members of your household. Keep your distance from other boaters and lakefront homeowners. And most importantly, breathe, smile, and let the healing power of the water bring you some peace of mind. I couldn't have said it any better myself. If you guys want to find out more about the WSIA or the Wake Responsibly Initiative, maybe you guys are bored and you need something to do, head over to wakeresponsibly.com, take the compliance exam right there, and uh, that's that. So let's get to it. My guest today is a very special one and really unlike any other I've had on the show before. Ty Openlander is a former professional water skier, a slalom skier, but we're not just going to talk about water skiing, although we will do plenty of that. No, currently, Ty is fighting a battle he knows he can't win. Ty was diagnosed and has been living with a brain tumor. And when I say living, I mean it in every sense of the word. Ty has lived an amazing life so far. He's a member of the Michigan Water Ski Association's Hall of Fame. He's competed all over the world, and he's even represented Team USA for a time. He's competed. He's coached. He found his passion, and he made it his life. And now I'm excited for all of you guys to hear his incredible story. So without further ado and without wasting another second let's get into it here it is ty openlander on the golden mike podcast when did you first put on a pair of skis three i was three years old were there any like skiers in your family yeah that's how i got involved most skiers start skiing by family members you know and my dad skied so i skied uh i the first time i skied i actually put my feet on his trick skis 
he was, I had two trick skis. I put my feet on his rubber bindings, and that's how I started. And that's how I kind of got a feel for it because so, it's it's mostly fear. Like if you can overcome the fear as a child, then you're you're okay, you know. But so that got me past the fear. So then I started skiing, and then my first tournament was when I was seven. Between like the ages of of three and seven, what's what's skiing like for you? Are you training? Are you recreational skiing? What are you doing? Are you trick skiing? Slalom skiing? I, I three vending, but um, mostly slalom because my dad slalomed. And um, basically, I got involved as a, like a recreation. Like, I was just having fun, you know, just going to the lake and goofing off. Kind of how most people start. And uh, and then I just got, kept do, doing it and doing it. And then um, when I was seven, I went to that tournament. I did well, and they got me interested in competing. Your, your family, from the research I did, has has their own private lake. Do you guys still have that lake? Yeah, we still have that lake. Um, we built that private lake in about uh, 95. Okay, so, so tell me tell me a little bit about um, that private lake, how you guys, like, how do you, how do you decide to build a private lake? How do you make that happen? And then how does that change your skiing? Well, that's a fun story because I, I was skiing on all those public lakes. And then we, like most skiers who ski on public lakes, we got to fight the fishermen, right? So we're fighting the fishermen every day. And they're in the middle of the course. So we try to be nice to them and say, well, buy some beer if you go off to the side, you know, because they're right in the middle of the course. And they're like, oh, we don't want to. We're like, we're going to make all fish go your way. You know, we're trying to do all those little psychology tricks. But, um, eventually we're like listen this is not working you know we always get into arguments with the fishermen and then and jet skis as soon as you saw a jet ski pull up to the lake and you're out on the lake you're like oh boy this is gonna be tough because you know they just go crazy you can't ski when jet skiers out there well they're fo- they're following you around jumping your waves yeah and yeah yeah exactly so then we said you know we gotta find a new lake so we started looking around for different lakes and then we go well let's like dredge something out you know like a a swampy area you know and then one thing led to another and then we ended up putting uh uh stakes on a a field that we had at our house at at our farmhouse in michigan and and it it worked perfectly in this field we had so you guys you guys actually had a a field in your farm that was large enough to build a lake on (laughs) yeah 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 so it was, it was one thing that led to the next. We looked at a lot of places to build a lake, and then we're like, why don't we just build it on our land, you know? Right, Makes right. sense, right? So then we set it up and go, you know, let's fire. We had to like kind of angle the lake a little bit. If you look at, like, aerial view, you can see it's, like, angled a little bit to make it fit. Because we have, like, 200 acres, and it fit perfectly in one of the fields. Were you ever, like, did you ever look at, like, wakeboarding or kneeboarding or anything other than water skiing? And and uh, have any kind of draw to that? I did. I I used to do. That's the myth about sports in general. Is like people think you only did one thing. You know, like like you think like Michael Jordan only played basketball. You know, it's, he did a lot of stuff. So like I did a lot of things. You know, and water skiing was one of those things. So I used to wakeboard. I used to jump and trick and tube and kneeboard and do everything. You know, and then um. I, I started realizing I was taller than most kids. You know, I was like, I'm not going to be a wakeboarder. You know, have you ever seen Darren Shapiro? You know, he's not the tallest guy. So then I was like, I'm going to. So I ended up being 6'4". And I'm like, if I want to be a pro, you ever see a 6'4 wakeboarder? Not me. Not many. <laughs> not many. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to slalom. So I, and I was, I like slalom because you go fast, right? And I got a need for speed. I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. So I started, started slaloming more and more. But I did do a lot of the other 
uh, water sports and other sports in general growing up, you know. Was your motivation coming a lot from your parents or was your motivation more on you? I um I got a little bug for the competition side of things, you know, like I I really wanted to win and it was exciting to uh, be in a sport that um, I could compete and win uh, during the summer, you know, because there's not much going on during the summer for in terms of when you're a kid, you know, it's like you'd be in school sports, but they're not really going on during the summer. So I, I really started skiing tournament during summer and then I just kind of got the bug with the competitions, you know, like I just liked, um, I liked the fact that there's a, a age group when you're competing against other people. Like there's a guy named Nathan Hoppy that, uh, that was my main competition growing. He's one of the guys that stopped skiing, you know, he right. must've not, he actually went to Alabama too, which is a good water ski school. And it seems like he would ski, but he wasn't interested, you know? So it's like, you can be pushed by your parents or anybody, but you eventually have to like have the inner fire to, to pursue it. Right. You know, to, long term. to make it, to make it your own. Right? Yeah. And that's what I had. So I used to come down to Florida um, during the winters and I, during when I was like in high school and I used to ski in Orlando and that's where I got the idea of like I want to move to Orlando because I used to ski with Schnitz over uh, with Steve Schnitzer over at uh, Ski Tech or before Ski Tech the Good Tech Center you know and then I skied there with Ski Tech and then the boarding school and projects and all that so I I, I really um really uh uh loved Orlando and I wanted to be in Orlando my whole life you know and so. And also, I like the idea of being a snowbird outside of water skiing, you know? I was like, I want to live in the warm weather, you know, during the winter. I don't want to live in Michigan during the, when it's snowing and sleeting. Yeah, no, and no, Michigan, the mid, you know, I'm from that Chicagoland. The, it's it's amazing up there. Uh, most of June, some of June, <laughs> most of July, right. most of August, you know? Yeah, right, for a couple months. Yeah, but. Yeah, so I like the idea of the snowbird, and then I always saw that, like, older generations would go back and forth. And I'm like, why do you have to wait until you're 80? You know, why not do it when you're younger? And so I was like, that's what I want to do. So that's what I did. So I, I went to college down in Florida and then I went up to Michigan to run a water ski school, which you touched on. Who are the guys that motivated you? Well, skiing is an interesting sport because it really struck big in the 80s. And that's when I was growing up, you know? So I liked uh, Carl Berge. I used to come down and ski with him down in the. Uh, or it was actually he lived close to um, Ski Tech where I used to ski. You know, out uh, in Chuliota. Sure, in East Orlando. Yeah, and so I I went and ski with him, but I admired Andy Mapple and Mike Chilander. He had a body slam, and you know I liked a lot of skiers, but you know obviously Andy was winning most of the time, so I I enjoyed watching him ski. But I love Jarrett Llewellyn. I mean, there are a lot of skiers that I really looked up to, you know. But what was it like to to be able to actually get to like ski with guys like Robert and Andy? Because I'm imagining that you may have even had a, an opportunity to to compete against Andy. Um, I did. I skied against Andy many times, actually, you know. And we got to be close. He's a great, great guy, and he lives in South Bay, which is close to like ten minutes from. Here. And I used to go over to his house. I used to say, "Hey, can I?" Um, to try a new ski and he'd be like come over and just give me a ski you know the nicest guy in the world so it was really cool that when i got to be in my 20s i got to come in you know form a closer bond with all these guys you know where i saw these guys growing up and um i really admired them and looked up to them you know i, I wouldn't say worshiped but i really you know 
they were my celebrities. You know, most people don't know skiers, but I really looked up to all these skiers. And then one in particular is Jennifer Leachman LaPointe. You know, she lives like five minutes from me. And I, I grew up loving her, you know, watching her on TV. And then, like, now we're really good friends. Right. And so it was really cool to uh, be in a sport where you kind of grew up watching the people you loved and then be able to be friends with them later in life. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, so what like out of any of your um, uh, accomplishments as far as like tournaments go, I know I saw uh, it like pro wise. I'm trying to like uh, I was trying to like look and see through the the record books, and I, I saw like a top three finish at Moomba Masters, and I saw that you were there was like a good uh, couple of years where where you were um, you were literally like right there in the mix. Any any of those. Um, pro podium standout yeah yeah i was on the podium quite a bit i didn't win uh big tournaments you know so but i was always a top 10 skier you know like on there's two main lists there's one called the elite list and one called the iwsf list and i was always top 10 like on both and for about a decade you know and but it was my timing in the professional world ski world was um a little bit toward the end of the bell curve like yeah, like the popularity, like like the, it was real big in the eighties and nineties, and then he had like the hot summer night tours, you know. Right. And so that's what I watch on ESPN. Sure. And uh, and then and then I got into it just after that, like late nineties into the two thousands, you know. So it was already kind of dropping in popularity by that time. Right. But I still went to all the pro tournaments. My favorite tournament was Moomba that you touched on right. in Australia. That was fun. I went there about ten times. What was it about Moomba that? Uh that uh, hit that note with you? Well, for one, there's a lot of spectators. So um, there's over 100,000 in the matter of the weekend because it's a three-day weekend for you know the people that live in Melbourne, Australia. And there's a lot of people that come. So it's a huge crowd. It's the only tournament that you feel like a, like a big athlete, like a gladiator, you know, coming into the Coliseum. So it, it, was, uh, it was cool from that standpoint. There's a lot of spectators and there's also a lot of... Uh, local students at the college of melbourne and uh they always wore these shirts that said ducks and they're called the uh the melbourne australia move of masters ducks and they always sit there and so it's kind of like almost like a, a sporting event like um basketball or football where people go tailgate and they drink it so, so you see all these ducks they were like intoxicated you know and they're sitting there screaming and they had their favorite skiers and they're cheering for them yeah. so I mean, when you say what I like about it, that's one thing is that you felt like a real athlete. You know, a lot of people cheering for you, people you didn't know. Right. And then I would always go over and talk to them, you know, and they're like, I can't believe this guy's talking to us, you know, because you were like a big star. You're like Michael Jordan to them, you know. And I'm like, but like, you know, in the ski world, you're like, well, I mean, skiing's not a huge sport, you know. I'm, I'm not a big celebrity, you know. I'm not Brad Pitt over here. Well, you know, it's like, I, and I say this about skiing and wakeboarding. Like, what other sport? Can you make a few phone calls, get on a flight, and come down and meet the greatest of all time? Only this sport, you know? Yeah, Only yeah, this yeah. sport are our athletes so yeah. accessible, you know? Yeah, and any other sport, like if you play football, you want to meet like Tom Brady, forget about it. You know, it's not going to happen. You got to call his agent, and then he's going to say no, because everybody wants to meet him. That's right, dude. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. But you want to meet Scott Byerly or Sean Murray? You know what I mean? <laughs> Go see him any day. Yeah. I see I see uh, Scott over at the Lowe's over here. You ever see him, Brett? Yeah. 
<laughs> he's always over here because he lives over here on like down. That's right. And I'm like, hey, what's that? He goes by himself and I like, talk to him for a couple minutes. But the, the accessibility is what you're talking about. And they're so accessible. You can just go meet, hang out with any of them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. Hey, so I, I want to touch back. You, you'd mentioned that you'd kind of gotten involved right at that curb, right? When, um, when skiing maybe was... I, I don't know, maybe losing some of its momentum, some of its steam, maybe some of its popularity. I don't really know. Um, but I want to ask you, for a guy who did get to grow up throughout the 80s and family was watching ski events, going to ski events, a guy who grew up watching and competing through the 90s, um, what what do you think happened? Why, why do you think that maybe uh, skiing or wa- toad water sports in general lost some steam? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think about it a lot, you know, because I'd like it to be as popular as football, you know, but um, I think the reason is a few things. One is there's more things to do on the water now. Like when I grew up in the 80s, it was like you ski or that's it. You know what I mean? And now it's like you surf, you wake skate, you wakeboard, you tube. There's all sorts of things to do, right? Not only that, but more people are inside. You know, people aren't on the water like look at the lake behind us. Nobody's out there, right? And so people are doing social media. You know, they're on TikTok and Facebook and stuff. So you don't get as many people on the water. And then when they do go on the water, there's so many choices. So basically, the water sports realm has uh, been diluted, you know? So that's what I think. Everybody, I mean, a lot of people are surfing now. You know what I mean? Like, I'd say 50% of the time I hear someone, they're like, we're going on the lake. I'm like, what are you doing? And they go, well, I'm surfing. You know what I mean? And so... I'm like, what about skiing? You know, like there's no surfing in the 80s, right? So uh, I think it's that twofold, you know, it's more diluted water sports and more people are inside living a sedentary life. Like they're on social media and stuff. That's in Instagram, you know, all those different things. And I don't think it's going to come back. That's one, that's one aspect. And we could talk all day about that. But uh, uh, when there are less eyes on, uh, it's all about money. Okay. So if there are less eyes on, a water ski tournament then boat companies aren't going to pump money into it right i mean why would they so uh that's that's a big problem with with water sports in general especially skiing is that people are don't have eyeballs on it so like if 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 espn like hot summer nights isn't getting the ratings they used to they're gonna cancel it right they can't get the ratings if they don't even put the show on though right yeah yeah you can't yeah you can't but uh, they're the I don't know behind the scenes the analytics, but are the, less are people the, are watching. Are the in your opinion are the athletes now maybe less flamboyant than in the days of of the Shaylanders and the um you know the Andy Mapples and the Carl Roberts and the Sammy Duvalls? I mean I I don't I, I know a lot of great water ski people and I and I feel like if they had the opportunity they would put themselves out there, but at the same time I mean when there's really not no one to put yourself out there to you know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You want to market the athletes, but I do not, to answer your question, I don't think that the current athletes are less marketable. They're just not getting marketed. It's funny because Nate Smith is the best skier, a slalom skier, and and nobody really knows Nate Smith. But if I go talk to someone, if you go talk to someone at the local grocery store, they'll be like, oh, you're a skier? Do you know Bob LaPointe? I'm like, yeah, yeah. He was good like 30 years ago, or born 30 years ago. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, they're not marketing these athletes. Nobody knows these skiers. You know what I mean? I mean, they in the inner circle. Is it on know. the? Is that on? You think it's on the sponsors, or do you think it's on the skiers? 
I don't. I don't think. And I don't just want to say the skiers. I want to say the athletes too, because I, I on the on the wake sports. I, this is supposed to be all you know encompassing yeah, yeah, of toad yeah. water sports in general. And I'm not gonna sit here and play it off like it's like uh, you know on the wake sports side of things. These athletes are being treated like you know yeah. kings either. So yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's all across the board. Um, I don't think that the the slalom skiers are less marketable. I just don't think they're being marketed because there's not the money behind it. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I talked to Carl. We were talking about Carl Roberge, and uh, he used to be sponsored by Oakley, okay? And he got big deals, you know? And then someone came along and got a deal and basically took the sponsorship from underneath them, right? And But you got to look from the business side of things so like oakley you know are they getting a big return out of giving a six-figure contract to a slomsky or probably not you know and so but why is the question you know what i mean maybe not anymore at one point perhaps right were, yeah yeah for sure at some point they were getting like i heard it was common to get half a million a year you know for a scheme unbelievable yeah man. just a just a just a different time yeah yeah it, it, but like going back to what we we're saying you know I don't think that, like, scores have gone up, and the, the people, they're not less marketable, you know what I mean? Like, there's some characters out there. They're just not getting marketed, and the reason is because the the companies don't feel like they'll get a return on their investment. Sure. Yeah. Let's keep moving forward here, and I want to talk about, um, uh, again, going back to the research that I did um, about you, I, I, I come to find out that you... Um, you had the opportunity to be a member of the USA water ski team, and you got to travel, what, to China? Was I it? went to Russia for the World to, Championships. And you got to travel to Russia for the World Championships. Um, tell, tell me what um, being chosen for the, for the USA team meant to you. And, um, like, I, I, could, I can't believe that in that time, because this is probably early, mid-2000s that you got picked for this team, that that was an easy time to make the team. No, there are a lot of great skiers skiing at that time. I actually have some pictures I can give you of me and the, the rest of the team. But I've skied the world a couple times, too. I skied in uh, Calgary, Canada, and I skied um, at the 21 and Underworlds down in Chile. But for, for the Russia world, you were actually a part. You were actually not just re representing you and your own brand. You were representing the country, right? That's right. Yeah, in, in Russia. But I did that in in Canada too. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but I mean, it was a great experience. I, uh, I, but it wasn't easy to make the team. But I had it as a goal because I believe in life. You really got to make goals, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to make a plan to achieve that goal because then it's not going to land in your lap. So I trained hard. I knew the scores I had to get, you know, and I, I went to a lot of tournaments to qualify for the Worlds. So I, I did that. and um, But like you said, it wasn't easy. And it was, I believe that year was a, a six-member team, you know. And so I, you know, it wasn't easy to be the top six in the world at that time, you know. So um, I really had a good experience going to Russia. And I had a really good, I, I, I skied okay, but it's more about the experience. And the older I get, the more I realize it's about the experience. It's not about winning. At the time, I thought it was about winning. You know, I was like, yeah, I got to win everything. But, you know, later now, I'm like, well, how did I do with that tournament? I don't even know, you know. Did I miss my gates in the opener? It doesn't matter. You know, it's about the experience. I want to talk about um, an injury that you sustained um, 
you, you were you were seeing a lot of ex, uh, a lot of success. You were um, being spotlighted in the magazines. People were calling you, you know, one of the next, you know, uh, big skiers to watch out for. You had a you had a lot of momentum going, and um, I feel like you had a lot of really good things going on in your corner. Um, you ended up testing a water ski before a tournament or something like that, and something went wrong, and you ended up having some sort of ankle injury. Um, t- tell us a little bit about this because this kind of changed the path of your career. It did big time. You know, I, um, I was skiing really well and, uh, I was, this is the, this is when, uh, H.O. Monza was getting really big. Right. So I was like, I better try it. Cause I was, I tried everything. Right. So I want to try the ski. So I was on the ski and I was on a small animal, H.O. animal back binding. And I crashed out the front at five ball at 39 and I tweaked my ankle and I tore a tendon called the flexor hallucis longus. Okay, so um, just just to break it down, just in case somebody who's listening is never doesn't know anything about slalom skiing, um, I'm gonna kind of tee this up for you. Yeah. Explain what 39 <laughs> means. Explain the speed that the boat is going. Explain where the handle and the rope is, where the buoy is, and how fast the boat's going and how fast you're going. Yeah, the boat's going about 36. Well, not about, but precisely 36, which doesn't seem like so fast when you're in a car, but it's fast on the water. Right. Right. So, and then you're going about double that, the skier, Booing when you go across the way. Yeah. So there's six buoys and there's three on each side and you go back and forth. And um, well, then tell us a little bit about 39, because there's something about 39 that, um, well, you being a six foot four <laughs> um, inch human being, right. um, 39 off is probably less scary to you than it is to me being five foot six you know you're almost a foot taller than me so kind of explain where that rope and handle is because that also adds on to this because the shorter you go the faster you're going to right that's right that's right the shorter you go the faster you go and um well basically water skiing is the way it's uh, uh judged is how short the rope is okay so uh, basically all pros Start at 32 off, and so you have to do a little uh, math, you know. So you go 32 off. What is that off? off? A 75 foot rope. Yeah, right? exactly. So, so like the first line length is 15 off. So you take 15 off a 75 foot rope at 60 feet. So the rope is 60 feet. So in order to determine how long the rope is, you got to do a little math, right? So, but then, but the, but in in Europe they do it by meters, right? So that's kind of what the world is going to now. So 32 off is actually 13 meters, okay? And, and that's actually easier to think about because it always confuses everybody. You know, you're like, I'm 39. You're like, isn't that easier than 15? No, because it's off. So right. you say 39 off, 39 and a half, which is you have to deduct that from 75. So anyway, the boat speed's going 36, and then you're going about double that from buoy to buoy. And then in order to make yourself longer to get your ski around the buoy, because you got to get your ski around the buoy to get disqualified, you got to let go with one hand. So you, you have to basically elongate your body to get the ski around the buoy. Because if you kept two hands on the handle, you're not going to make yourself well, long and, enough. And, and at 39 off when you're slalom skiing, where is that handle in, rel- in relativity to the uh, buoy? The the handle is inside the buoy line, so you that's why it helps to be taller. But how far inside the buoy line? Because like because thirty like thirty eight off, it's you're already starting to get inside that buoy line, but like just inside that buoy line. Right. Thirty nine off. I mean, if you were to go from the pylon of the boat, 
right. to the buoy. Yeah. It, you're, what, two feet off? Yeah, it's about two and a half feet from the... You, I like your water ski knowledge. That's good. <laughs> so it helps to be taller because you want to get your skier on the buoy and then go to the next buoy, you know? And then, now, so so what Ty's saying, so as he comes around the four buoy into five on this injury, I mean, basically, you're being slingshotted from the four ball right. into the five ball. And if the boat's going 36 miles an hour, you're only, like, well, 30 feet, 30-some feet behind the boat at this point. Yep, and you got to stop on a dime. And, and you got... So you're so you're going from start from buoy to buoy. I mean, you're probably going seventy miles an hour when you. When yeah, it's happens. about seventy. Yeah, if you if you clock with the radar gun, it's about seventy. So you so you you take this crash around five ball. Yeah. And uh and, and you and you come up and and immediately do you do you know something's wrong with your foot? Yes, yes. I was at a ski school, um, Matt Rini's, which I'm not sure if all your audience is gonna know Matt Rini's, but he moved. He's at a different lake, but he used to be out out in Claremont. Right. And uh, I was there and I I was trying the Monza and I was I, was, I wasn't that late. You know, I was pretty early in the five, but I stopped and then the ski just stopped because when you're trying something you're not sure how it's going to act, you know. Right. It's kind of like driving a new car, you know, if you hit your brakes, you don't know if it's going to stop right away, is it going to stop a little slower. So anyway, I turned and a crash that came out the front, but my back foot did not, you know, so my back foot stayed in. It was a small animal HL back binding and it stayed in and so that's what kind of tore my ankle apart so i had a surgery to repair that i had it in baltimore one in baltimore and one in amsterdam and that's when i started skiing again but it, it took about three years off you yeah know? so okay so that was that was what i found interesting about this ankle injury is that with 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 that ankle injury you um you sustained it and um you basically um, we're in pain for 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 a few years after that. But now, how long before you were at like after the initial injury? How long before you were actually back on the water? Um, it was about three years. So ultimately, with your injury, you come to realize that it's it's something completely different than all, most of the doctors are are diagnosing you with, and it ends up that uh, you end up having what a. a uh, internal, like some weird internal bone chip of some yeah, sort. Yeah, I had a bone chip. Yeah, you did your homework. And then, yeah. and and what I read was that there's no doctors in the states that felt confident to go in there and remove this. So you had to find a doctor in Europe. That's right. Yeah, because they've they have a lot more ankle injuries in Europe because of soccer and other rugby and sports. So I found a doctor in Amsterdam. Uh, at the AMC clinic, um, and so you fly. There's actually a train straight from the airport to the hospital, so I didn't even have to rent a car or anything. So I went there, and they got the bone chip out, and I still have that bone chip in a little uh, jar. Okay, so so once they uh, once they remove the bone chip, um, just how how fast after that are you back out there on the water? Um, I was back within six months. You know, but I, I had to do a lot of altercations to my skiing equipment to get be able to ski. You know, like, like for instance, I had to um put a wedge on my back heel. You know what I mean? And actually, there were benefits to it. I'm surprised there aren't more skiers messing around with the, the, the elevation of their feet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because with my back foot heel elevated, my offside was super sharp. Is like razor sharp. Were, so after the injury, were you able to get back to the uh, level that you were skiing at? previous no no there's a there's a a factor of being naive when you're younger you know you feel invincible right Right. like i feel like most people feel invincible when they're younger and so that helps in sports so um 
when I was skiing younger, I didn't know any better, you know. But then when I was older, I I I took me longer, even like not skiing, but like exercising, like jogging. I remember jogging like twenty feet and being really out of breath. Right. You know what I mean? And I was like, this has never happened. So I was very confused. I was like, what's happening? You know. So. I got, it took me a while to get back in shape, but I never quite got back. I did get back to like top 10 in the world, but I didn't get back to where I was. You, it was like a mental thing. You just lost the confidence maybe, or? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it, but physical too, you know, I just, it was. Well, three years off the water. I mean, you probably at some point start losing some muscle memory. Yeah. And you think you're going to start back off where you left off, but it's not that way it works. Well, I feel like there was like actually, um, a silver lining with the, with the whole injury because, because of that, it kind of got you into coaching. Um, Mm -hmm. and you had the perfect location to do that. You guys have a private lake in Michigan. Um, talk a little bit about, um, what got you into coaching, um, why you started doing it and how it made you feel. I coached a little bit before that injury, just kind of, uh, you know, local uh, kids and stuff. But then you're right. When I got hurt, I really started focusing on coaching. And I was like, you know what? Even if I get back to where I was, I can't do this forever, right? And it's not like a NFL or NBA where you make millions and you retire, you know? So I was like, you know, I got to do something the rest of my life. So um, I ended up starting that ski school, water ski school academy. I, I coached like all sports too, you know, water sports. Like I coached some wakeboarding and jumping and tricking. It wasn't all slum, but it was mostly slum. Sure. And that was in our, or that was at our private lake in uh, outside Kalamazoo, Michigan. And, um, and so I started coaching more and more. I made it more like a legit business, you know, like I got a driver, even though it was my mom. <laughs> But still, I got I, so my eyes were always on the skier. It wasn't like I was driving and coaching, which, right? Which is what usually happens, sure. right? And so I did that, and then I really started uh, 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 coaching more and more. And uh, and uh, I, what I actually did is like as I got back into skiing myself, I'd go ski tournaments and then coach my skiers if they were at the tournaments, you know. And that's something I hadn't done before. Was there like an endpoint? Um- before the struggles that you, that you have to deal with now, or were were you skiing professionally up until the moment that you that you um, you know were told about the battle that you're currently facing? Yeah. I got um, in back. I, I kind of phased myself out because I was like, you know, I saw a lot of older skiers without saying any names that were like, you know, older and and still skiing but not making the money that I wanted to make. So. A professional goal that I had was, you know, have a family, have a house, you know, and I'm like, I'm not going to get that stuff with, you know, being a ski bum. So I was like, I got to phase myself out of skiing. And it was a tough decision, you know. I mean, right. I still skied, I still coach, but it was a tough decision because there's something I did my whole life. And I really wanted to stay involved somehow, but I'm like, I can't make it full time. I got to do it part time. So that's what I did. So I, I kind of phased myself out. I didn't ski professionally until the day that I got diagnosed with my issues. So now you're done competitively skiing, but you're still out there enjoying it recreationally. Again, that's right? right. That's right. Yeah. I still almost, ski. Almost like full circle back to like when you were a kid, right? Right, right, right. Which is still fun. I went to tournaments still up until, you know, I couldn't ski anymore. I went to tournaments. I went skied. I practiced. And I always had the intention to get back into it. There's a whole like kind of like senior tour called the Big Dog, 
and I was gonna get back into that, you know, and I, I'm sure I would have done well, right. you know, and so I was really looking forward to that, and it's funny because even growing up, all the uh, people I looked up to as like real men were like 35 and over, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, because like men's three is a category age group, right? 35 to 45, and I was like, you know, those are real men. Anybody anything younger than that's not a real man. So, I, so I was looking forward to that. You know, what I mean, most people don't look forward to you know getting out of professional skiing and they, you know, have to start skiing the senior tour. But sure. I was looking forward to that. You know, so I was go- That was my goal. My plan was to start skiing the big dog tournaments. Hey, hey, so heads up, this interview is about to switch gears, and we're going to talk about Ty's more recent struggles. But before that, I wanted to give a quick shout out to GoPuck. GoPuck is the leader in wearable portable power for all your USB powered devices. From phones to cameras, GoPuck has some of the best solutions in the industry, like their flagship X36R portable charger. I love mine. I use mine. I take it with me everywhere I go. And if you know me personally, you know it's true. It's 20% more efficient than a Tesla P100D battery pack. And that sounds pretty amazing. The X36R goes for about 100 bucks on their website, gopuck.com, but you can get 30% off if you use the promo code MANO30 at checkout. That's a nice little chunk of change you're saving right there, brother. And they offer free shipping in the U.S. for all orders over $50. So there's no extra cost you got to worry about on that one. Check it out, guys. Head over to GoPuck.com. I recommend picking up two or three of these bad boys, but it's all up to you. Now let's get back to our interview with my man Ty Openlander right here on the Golden Mike Podcast. Going through everything, you've, you've, you've been skiing amateur, you skied collegiate, you skied professionally, you coached, you were injured, you were hit with another uh, unimaginable setback. And I and and we've we've started to talk a little bit about it, but I was hoping that now you could kind of elaborate on um, basically the battle that you're in right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a fun story, but we can talk about. It. I mean, there's no off limits, by the way. <laughs> I'm very open. I'm very transparent. So in uh, 2017, I was 34, and I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And um, that kind of that kind of set me back to say the least. You know what I mean? Like everything was going good in life, right? I just had a newborn child and everything, and uh, I was like, you know, I'm right where I want to be. But then I started having balance issues. You know what I mean? I was like, and I skied like I skied at a ski school in Orlando called Jody Fisher's, and and I wasn't skiing well. You know, like as well as I should. And, you know, my balance is kind of. I'm like, what the heck? So then um, uh, I ended up uh. Uh, skiing a couple other times but it's just like in other sports too it wasn't just skiing but like um i was playing tennis and basketball and volleyball there's a there's a uh, volleyball court right over by my house off of hempel road and i started and i was playing volleyball and they're with these new guys right beach volleyball and i was like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna step behind and they're like uh uh-huh, nice excuse you know i was like no I'm, i swear i'm better than this you know what i mean and they go yeah right and i was like no i am i was like something's up and it's funny because when you have like the flu and you're like, I'm going to die. Right. 
it's like you're fine, right? It's like when you feel really bad, <laughs> it's the things that are you're a little off. That's what's gonna kill you. So anyway, I got I was like, man, I'm not feeling good. And then um, I went to a ear, nose, throat doctor in Lake Mary, Florida, in Doctor Colette, and um, I go, you know, my balance is off. He goes, uh huh, your balance, you say? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, like, like, tell me what it feels like. I'm like, well, you know, after you have a couple of drinks, you know, not too much. You know, like, you're trying to figure out if you could drive or not. You know, you're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't drive. I was like, so it kind of feels like that. And he goes, how about you do an MRI just to make sure. And then make sure it's not the worst case scenario. So I said, I don't know what that means, but okay. So I went and got an MRI. And then this is what happened. This is a funny story. It's not so funny, actually. It's, tra it's tragic. But the next day they called me and they said, can you come in, you know? And I go, why can't you just tell me over the phone? You know, save me some time because Lake Mary's like a half hour away. And they go, oh, you should probably come in. And this is when I started realizing things were not good because, first of all, why did they call me in, right? Why don't they tell me on the phone? So then, two minutes later, a neurosurgeon's office called me. Uh, and I nobody wants to get a call from a neurosurgeon. And my wife was like, who was that? And I was like, I don't know. I think it was a podiatrist, a foot doctor. And she goes, uh, what's, what's his name? And I go, Dr. Fields. It was from Dr. Fields' office. And I go, can you Google it? So she Googled it, you know? And as a neurosurgeon, I go, neurosurgeon? I, nobody wants to see a neurosurgeon, you know what I'm saying? That's not something you go do. So I was like, this can't be good. So I went up, so I drove up. I don't think they're supposed to call, you know, the, the neurosurgeon. You know, not yet, you know what I mean? So they go, you got a consultation on Tuesday. We set it up for you. I was like, for what? So I was kind of confused, you know, I was like, why? And so I drove up to, to the, uh, uh, the ENT and, uh, this is when I knew something, I mean, the neurosurgeon tipped me off too, but I knew something was wrong because they asked my wife and child to stay in the waiting room. You know what I mean? I was like, why? You know, that's weird. So I had to go back and Dr. Klett wanted to meet with me in his, his, uh, room by himself. You know, I was like, this is not looking good. And he never looked at me, like, the whole time. Like, no eye contact, right? So I was like, he goes, oh, they found something. I was like, well, he tried to downplay it, right? He goes, oh, they found something. I was like, like, what? They go, oh, they found a mass. And I go, what? Like, my brain is massive because I'm really smart? And he goes, no, no, not exactly. And so my cousin is a neurosurgeon, right? So I texted him the printout of the um, MRI. So I go, what do I do, you know? I was like, I'm, this is not my realm, you know? And he goes, oh, you have to get another MRI. And I go, why do I need two MRIs? And he goes, because you have to get one with contrast. This is probably stuff you don't care about. But contrast is when you shoot, like, dye into your bloodstream with an IV. And it, it lights up problem areas. And if it lights up like a Christmas tree, that's bad. So you don't want it to light up, right? So I had to go back to the Florida Health Pavilion over on Dollar Drive, Dr. Phillips. And I had to get another MRI. Okay, with contrast this time. Okay, so I got that, and they it showed a tumor in the middle of my head, right? And so I was like, that's not good, you know, because no, like, I didn't really ever think about it before. I'm like, your brain basically operates your whole body, okay? And and I everybody knows that, but, like, I, ne I never thought about it, right? So I'm like, it can't be. And I was like, where is it? I asked the, the ENT. I was like, where is it? And he goes, it's in the middle of your head uh, on your brainstem. And I was like, that's not a good area. I mean, you don't want one anywhere, but you don't want one there, right? So I texted my cousin. I'm like, 
hey man, his name's Mark. And I said, what do I do? He goes, you need to go to Arizona, Phoenix, where I used to work, right? This place called Barrow Neurological Institute. So BNI for short, it's an acronym. So I went to BNI that week, you know what I mean? And I met with a doctor. So this is stuff is like, <laughs> I can tell, tell you about this all day. But basically in, Oh, yeah. What I got diagnosed with was, um, they didn't know this till later, you know, but it's called the diffuse astrocytoma, which is, it's very rare. So, first of all, brainstem gliomas is what I have. That That is already rare, right? So, well, how rare is it? A point zero two three percent of the population gets it every year. And then... That's, that's all brain cancer. That's not just mine. Then of mine is 1%. So I have 1% of 0.023%. So it's super rare. I mean, like, is there is there an actual number, like the amount of people? Like, Not a lot, not a lot. I asked my cousin, because my cousin Mark worked at B&I, and I asked him, like, how often do you see this? He goes, not very often. He goes, he worked there for seven years, right? And that's what he did. He was a brain surgeon. And he goes, I've only seen a couple. Because the thing is, most people that get this are kids. Because it's developmental in nature. So as your brainstem develops, that's when the tumor grows, right? So, so is this something that you lived with for a long they, time? Or? They can do a lot of tests on the um, the sample of the tissue, but they can't tell you how long it's been there. So people have speculated it's been there. It started growing there as a kid. You know, I don't know. I feel like it started when I was in my 20s. But it's just weird because it's a child's tumor, okay? Which is strange. Why did, is an adult getting this, right? I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. You know what I mean? Like, I talked to my doctors, and they don't know. And still today, what's the, what, like, what's going on? Like, where are you guys at today? Well, so I did the, the surgery to try to remove it. And then um, they could only get out about 30% of it in uh, Barrow at BNI in Phoenix. And it's it not a good experience. I mean, you can imagine brain surgery is not fun. And then um, afterwards, um, I had to do radiation. And radiation is what really caused a lot of issues. You know what I mean? Like, and nobody, everybody downplays what's going on. You know, like, oh, yeah, just do that. It's like going to the park. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay. And then you do it, and you're like, oh, man, that was rough. So, like, I was, I did radiation for six weeks because that's standard. What I realized is, like, it goes by the book, right? You have a book. Every profession has a book, right? And so they flip over. Oh, you got this. Okay, we'll do this. You know what I mean? So I did radiation. Um, it was about about four weeks after surgery. So I had brain surgery. They got a sample out, a tumor of the, um, of the tumor. And um, they got, you know, they tested it. Anyway, this is stuff nobody probably cares about, but there's uh, they found a lot of stuff. One called the K27 mutant H3 histone, and um, it uh, it's like it's it's basically like an accelerator. It's like pouring gasoline like on a fire. You know what I mean? So it's bad enough to have the fire, right? right? So then you have gasoline poured on it. But the good thing is, it's not acting like that. You know what I mean? Or else I wouldn't be here talking to you. You sure. know. What I mean? So there's there's like that analogy of the fire, which is the best. So H three, they just discovered it last year, two years ago. So um, basically, what happened is I had the surgery, had a little break because you got to recover, right? So then I had radiation, which is just bad because you got to think about radiation is like um, 
It's like bombing a city, right? And you got to bomb like the, around the city because you got all these little lights on in these houses around the city. It's kind of like, I know your audience is all around the world, but Orlando, and you have to, you can't forget about like Winter Garden and Winter Park. You know what I mean? You can't like forget about all that because all these little cancer cells are like all around. Well, the problem with mine is it's on my brainstem, right? right? So it's like you bomb all the areas around it, but guess what? It's on your brainstem. Right, so your brainstem controls everything. Think about it. You get your brain, and then how, like, how am I lifting up my hand right now? You know, it's got to go down through your uh, brainstem. So that's what. So it's kind of like your brainstem controls all your movements. So after your initial surgery, did you have to relearn, like, certain? Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I see you right now. You're, yeah. you're getting around pretty well. I'm assuming that six or seven years ago, you were probably getting around a lot quicker or yeah. whatever, but. At, at the same time, like like right now, I mean, you know, if if I wouldn't have known you and I wouldn't have known what you were going through, yeah. you know what I mean? I may <laughs> think that maybe you just took a couple of knocks to the head or something, yeah. you know? Yeah, I was at Chipotle the other day and uh, two cops were in there and they're like, uh, maybe you shouldn't be driving. <laughs> and they go, have you had a few to drink? I was like, it's three. What? Like, you think I'm an alcoholic? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it looks like, I mean... From a, a person who's watching, it looks like I've had too many, you know, like if I had a couple of drinks, you know. I mean, that's that's the, 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 and that, like I said, that's how, when I first felt things were off, you know, that's how I felt. I'm like, man, I feel like drunk all the time. But then it was like three, four drinks. Now it's like 20. So a little different. But yeah, I mean, the radiation really set me back. And then now, you know, I did two bouts of chemo. It wasn't the regular chemo. I didn't know any of this stuff before. But there's different types of chemo. So I did one called the Vastin, which is an IV, and I did it one with a pill. So I did I did that. The problem with the brain cancer, besides being brain cancer, um, is that it's hard to pass through the blood-brain barrier, right? There's a barrier. And it's like, how do you get stuff through there to, like, fight the cancer? You know what I mean? It's hard because everything, that, that barrier blocks everything, which is good because if you had like a drink of alcohol, you'd like die without that blood-brain barrier. Sure. So it's good to have, but it's bad if there's something in your head that you got to treat, right? So that's kind of what happened. So basically, uh, there's not a lot that can be done at this point because I did the radiation, I did the chemo, I did the surgery. So I was like, what else can you do? I can do like experimental stuff, you know, like trials. I could do, uh, there's a couple of trials that I could do. Like, there's one called ONC 201, OC201. It's a trial, it's phase two. So, I could take that, I could help. You know what I mean? But at this point, there's like, is, there's no, there's no hope, basically. I mean, so, I, I, obviously, I mean, dude, you're a super strong dude, and obviously, mentally, you've got it all together right now. But, um, you know, like, 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 overall, for you, like, like what's next? What do you, what do you have? What do you like? What's the goal? I mean, because obviously I, I can only assume at this point every day is the best day for you. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because like my family thinks I'm real cynical these days, you know, like I'm depressed and it's like, well, how do you not be? You know what I mean? I mean, if someone tells you you're dying, you're like, it changes your whole mindset. Right. And then not only did they say I'm dying, but they said that I'd be dead in 12 months, you know, it's been like 36. So, you know, obviously they weren't right, but it's, it changes your whole perception. Like I had to quit my job, you know what I mean? So I focus on my son now, uh, 
So he's four now. So it's like I want to spend time with him and I make videos like, you know, telling him about like lessons like honestly the best policy you know stuff like that you teach him to ski or anything like that I, yeah but so like my basically to answer your question my whole time is spent with him you know like I, i've taught him a little bit about skiing and he watches videos of me skiing and he like, pretends to ski like with a handle like in the living room you know the bedroom <laughs> he like goes back and forth so it's cute but um i spent all my time uh with him or and teaching him stuff and then I do videos, you know, teaching him stuff. But it's kinda like I can't work, so I can't I find like, you know, what is my purpose now? You know what I mean? Like what and then people always have recommendations. Well, why don't you commentate? Why don't you do it? And like they don't know. I'm like, there are no terms to commentate, you know? I'm like, what am I gonna commentate? Like the masters? I mean you can't just go commentate. Dano's commentating. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, what am I gonna do? You know? I mean but so people don't really understand the industry. So it's kinda hard. So it's kinda like you gotta take your hate matters into your own hands and that's kinda what I've done. And I'm like, you have to really prioritize, you know, and so I'm like you know, my son is four now, and so I've had a couple years with him, and, but, you know, it's like, what's important? And at this point, my son is the most important. Obviously, there's other important things, but it's like, what's most important? It's my son. And so teaching him, spending time with him every day and doing videos that he can watch the rest of his life, you know, stuff like that is important. Yeah. You know, obviously, this is super, super heavy, and um, it, it sucks on every level. Um, hmm. But, like, dude... I, I know what you're saying and like, but bro, like you, you do have a positive energy and, and it, it seems like you are, you know, making the best of every day and, and whatnot. And I want to ask you because obviously what you're going through, like you said, less than 1% of people are ever going to have to worry about something like this. Right. Right. Okay. Which is even smaller when it comes to the numbers of people probably listening to my show, <laughs> but there are, but there are people who are listening that are going through stuff just as heavy maybe in like right. a different way sure. um do you have any like other advice um for people who you know who might feel like like they're up against you know huge situations or battles like you yeah i mean first of all you know you have to always remember that it's not the end of the world. You know, even what I'm going through, I'm still here. I'm talking to you. I'm doing stuff. You can always do stuff, right? Like, I can't ski anymore, but it's not the end of the world. Like, I can still swim. I go to the YMCA and swim every day. And, you know, there's still, there's always something you can do. I, I was very athletic before. I, before I'd spend, you know, all my days doing stuff like skiing and tennis and basketball and volleyball and, you know, I did a lot of athletic stuff, and then, you know, I can't do any of it anymore. So you think, well, okay, well, what purpose do you have? You know, like, that's all you did. What do you do now? And, and working, too. I can't work, can't do any sport. So it's like, there's always something you can do, no matter how bad it is. And despite my situation, there's still people that are worse off than me. You know what I mean? Like, I visited a friend the other day who had a stroke, just passed the bar exam. She was in her early 20s, had a stroke. In early 20s, you know, just got a good job as a lawyer. And then she can barely, she can't walk at all. She can barely speak. And she definitely can't do, like, an interview like I'm doing right now. You know what I mean? So there's always people that you're like, well, you know, I mean, it is a bad situation, obviously. But always remember that it could be worse, right? And it sounds cliche, and my family always says stuff like that and drives me crazy because they're like, well, you still have your legs, you can walk. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
I mean, I guess, you know, and they're like, well, there's people that can't walk. And it's like, yeah. So, I mean, there, there is a way to look at it that's uh, healthy and a way to look at it that's destructive, you know? So, like, I can't do much, but I can still do something. And one of the best quotes I ever heard was, uh, we're all here until we're not anymore. You know what I mean? So I'm still here, so I'm not going to, like, just curl up and go in a closet and, you know, die. You know, I'm going to, like, still do whatever I can. You know, I can't ski anymore, but I can still swim and I can still spend time with my son. So, yeah, there's still stuff I can do. So what I would say to people going through something, first of all, don't make it bigger than what it is, you know. To this day, people still complain about traffic to me. You know, they're like, oh, you wouldn't believe the heavy traffic. I'm like, I'm going to be dead soon. And you're talking about traffic. You know what I mean? Like, they just, they always make something bigger than what it is. You know, traffic is not a big deal. Okay. And it's something you can't control. So if you're going to worry about something, at least worry about things you can control. Right. Like this situation, I can't control. So, you know, it's like, how much do I worry about it? You know what I mean? So worry about things. Well, don't worry about as much as you think you need to worry about, but at least if you're going to worry, because everybody worries, worry about stuff that you can control, right? You can't control traffic. Everybody complains about traffic. It drives me nuts. Stop talking about traffic. But I would say that is important, is to kind of put everything in perspective, right? Like, always remember that it's not that big a deal, okay? Traffic is not that big a deal. And, you know, then, you know, you got to do what you can do, you know? Like, I can't ski, so you can't say, well, life's over, right? Throw, throw in the towel. No, I mean... That's one way to look at it, but it's not a good way to look at it. You know, it's like, what's skiing? You know, how many people ski? You know, I mean, not a lot. So it's like, am I really going to be that worried and stressed and, you know, about not skiing? You know, don't worry about stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, and we're all here. You know, you got to remember life is a gift. So you want to basically optimize every day. So whatever you can do, like right now I can't do the stuff I used to do, you know, but I can still do some stuff, you know what I mean? So, and my son is four, he doesn't know what's going on. So it's like I spend time with him and I can still get around, I can still do stuff. So do what you can is what I'm saying. Do what you can, do your best and forget the rest. Amazing, dude. Listen, Ty, you um, you seem to have stuff pretty put together, but... Um, but I want to know, because I'm sure people listening here are going to want to know if, if they can do anything to help. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you probably want positive vibes sent your way, but I don't know if you are affiliated with any charities for yourself or have anything set in place for your son for the future or anything like that. But I wanted to give you an opportunity if there is something like that for you to talk about it real quick. Of course. Yeah, thanks. I have a, uh, a GoFundMe account uh, in my son's name, which is Brock, B-R-O-C-K. And then same last name, open letter, O-P-P-E-N-L-A-N-D-E-R. And you can go to GoFundMe, you can find it. But basically, it's to help pay for his college fund. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to be around. I'm not unrealistic, you know? I'm not going to be around for his college years. And so it's sad. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more that I'd like to be a part of. But paying for college is kind of a big deal. So if somebody wants to donate to his college fund, that'd be awesome. Very good. All right, all right. Um, and then also, like, if, if anybody wants to find out kind of more information about you and, uh, and, and what's going on with you, is there anywhere where they can do that? I don't have anything yet. I, I stay in contact with a lot of people, but it's really Facebook Messenger and, and um, email and, and text. But I don't have, like, a, a website giving updates. Yeah. 
No. Well, I, if I could make a recommendation, I recommend that you uh, maybe start something because you are you are a motivating dude. I think you could definitely motivate a lot of people, and even within our industry and whatnot. So yeah, um, I appreciate that. I mean, I really appreciate you for giving me the opportunity to to come over here and and sit down and, and get your story. I think people are are going to be really uh, compelled to listen to this one for sure. Um, any before I before I give you the chance to do the three S's, the shout outs, <laughs> uh, the sponsors and the social media stuff, right. if you want any of that, um, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on here that we didn't get to? I mean, I would say uh, like there's so many people that tried to divide the industry, you know, into little groups like yeah, wakeboarders and skiers. And I think that's a shame, you know, because, um, you know. Like some of my best friends are wakeboarders. Anybody thinks, well, skiers and wakeboarders can't get along. And I'm like, yes, they can. It's kind of like snow skiers and snowboarders. It's like, well, of course they can. And, and But I don't like all the hate. You know, like a lot of slalom skiers would be like, well, you're a wakeboarder. I'm like, well, because I wear like baggy pants or something. I'm like, stop being so judgmental. So the main thing I would say is like, there shouldn't be a divide, you know? Like everybody should get along, you know? Like water sports is water sports. So we should all like hold hands and sing kumbaya <laughs> well i i think it just goes back to think about that first time you got on the water i don't i don't know how many people maybe with the exception of like say like an uh cory picos son or something like that yeah. that they were uh built born bred and raised just to be a competitive machine think about the first time you got in the boat competition was probably not even a thought you know right 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 i didn't know where it was gonna take me i just kind of was like along for the ride and did competition wasn't a thought disciplines wasn't a thought it didn't matter when you were a kid you wanted to go out and tube as much as you wanted to to ski you know what i mean and yeah 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 well, and, i don't know if you did i know i thought i wanted to yeah but. yeah 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 there's a lot of different options in the world to explore and but eventually this the way the world works you got to pick one because you can't be great at all it's like jack of all trades master of none so it's kind of like you you want to explore different sports and different activities right in life and especially as a kid but eventually you have to kind of like especially these days you know i was talking to a parent and a friend of mine and they're like yeah my daughter is playing softball and she's got to focus on just softball she used to do like volleyball and all this other stuff soccer but it's like you got to focus on one thing if you want to be great so yeah i mean i would say when you're younger or, you know, if you have kids, you know, try to get them into a lot of stuff. See what they like. But then, I mean, it's a very interesting discussion, which we don't have time for. But it's like, how much do you push your kids? Because you want them to be great, right? But you don't want anything to bad happen. You want them to love what they do. But like, you know, Michael Jackson's dad would push him to be a performer. Would we be talking about Michael Jackson right now if his dad didn't push him? Right. Probably not, right? He'd probably be working as a plumber somewhere. I don't know. But what I'm saying is you got to push your kids, but they have to like and love what they do. But it's the question is how much to push them. Sure. You know what I mean? Because kids, if you give them the choice, they'll probably play video games all day. So you gotta like, you know, kind of like what you're saying before, you like your parents told you you could wakeboard after you ski, you know, 30 sets or whatever, ski, you know, a line length, like 32 off or so. So it's kind of like that, you know, you, you can't let the kids do whatever they want because the kids don't even know what they want, right? right? So it's like, how much do you push them? I say, just let them do as much, like expose them to as much as possible. 
and then let them dial in on a sport. You know what I mean? I, because I was talking to someone about this. This is getting too long, but I was talking to someone about this, about tennis, because my son's doing tennis lessons right now, and they have the uh, under-18 championships in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And um, we're talking about this, and the, the person said that a lot of the kids quit because they are just pushed by the parents, and they're good, right? Like, they go to the championships and stuff, but they don't continue it. So the kid has to love what they do. Like, I love. Well, I, I think lo- we see. I think we've seen it in our sport. I think you even mentioned a guy. You know what I mean? In, in this interview, like that. That's that. I mean, it's great to have that that parental support, but you know, and it's and also when the kid wants to be pushed like that. And it sounds to me like you grew up kind of wanting that push in slalom skiing, but you probably would have been so stoked if your dad made you slalom trick jump and work as hard on all three of those as you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, options in the world these days in terms of, like, sports and how you spend your time, you know. And I think you do need to push, you know, and there are a lot of factors that go into it, you know. If you look at the best basketball players, I'm sure LeBron James had, like, all his brothers and siblings and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, friends playing basketball, you know. And so it's like, okay, that's probably helped him, right, to push him. Because if you have someone else saying, let's go practice, then you want to go practice. So it's kind of, it's, there's a lot of variables that go into being good at a sport, you know. For skiing, for me, obviously, you know, the lake helped a lot, right? Building a private lake and having my family ski. So, I mean, but it's like, how much do you push? I was never, like, whipped into, you know, it was like a personal decision. So I believe that... A kid has to decide to do it, you know, because there are a lot of parents that are like, do it, do it, do it, you know, and then they like the tennis, you know, they're like, go play tennis, but they don't really want to play tennis, but they're good. And then they go play and it's like, okay, they're great. They're great tennis, but they don't like like tennis, So they don't want to play is with their parents dream. So it's got to be their dream. Sure. You know what I mean? And, And that's what really separates people from either quitting or being non-existent, not good, and being great is like you have to love to do it. If you talk to anybody who's great at something, I'm sure they'll all say, I love to do it. You know what I mean? You have to because if you don't love it, you're not going to do it or do it well. Yep, and, and when you don't love it anymore, guys, probably time to time to hang it up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. All right, Ty, let's uh, close this thing out. I'm going to give you the chance, the three S's, as <laughs> I like to call them, the shout-outs, the social media, the sponsors, Whatever you want, if you want to, you know, take a a few moments to uh, just uh, throw it all out there. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a lot. I wish I could say I was on Twitter, but I'm not. But you're on Facebook, though. I'm on Facebook. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, Just my name, Ty Openlander, and you can. I try to post stuff frequently, so you can follow me along on that. Um, Besides that, I mean, there's not a whole lot of shout outs. A shout out to my family for being supportive. You know what I mean? On my my two sisters, older sister, I'm the baby, and then uh, my parents. And so, shout out to them, Ricker and and Peaks, and uh, my mom and my dad. And uh, they're the biggest support. You know, going through a big struggle like this, obviously, you need good support, right? So they they've been very supportive. So shout out to them, and uh, that's about it. Awesome, man. Any any uh, sponsors take care of you during the uh, during your career? Yeah, Dave Good uh, was a big sponsor. He just passed away in a plane crash, but um, I'm still gonna shout out to the Good family and um, and Sands Rival, which is a, a an Austrian company. It's a French name. It means without rival. Um, they were a sponsor toward the end of my career. 
So I've good in uh, Sands Rival were my two big sponsors. And before that, H O and Kidder growing up. <laughs> yeah. I'm still gonna shout out Kidder. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so so you know, I got a, I got a few sponsors and um they're all great, you know, and and I just wanna shout out the whole water sports world because it's a great sport, you know. Everything everything on the water is great, you know. And we grow up, you know, and there's a lot of choices. I mean we could have done something else, but you love water sports as much as I do. That's why I live on a lake, you know. And so I would say just love everybody, you know, because life is short, you know, so there shouldn't be this divide. That's you know right. what I mean? So love love everybody. That's it. That's it. That's all. Ty, thanks again, brother. Yeah, you, thank you. That's it. Guys, listen up. Uh, we'll be right back a little bit more. Again, I want to thank this dude, Ty Openlander, for sharing his entire story with us. This has been uh, absolutely insane. Um, what a story you have, my friend. You're super inspirational. And, uh, man, uh, 24 months ago, I, I know what they said about, or, or whatever, 36 months ago, I know they, they said you had 12, yeah. 36 months later. Here we are doing this thing, dude. When I, the day that you posted on Facebook that this was going on, I wrote down in my notepad that I wanted to make sure I connected with you. And um, again, uh, thank you, Brett, for for putting this whole thing together. And um, also, um, Ken, a buddy of mine that I met through the podcast up in Michigan yep. um, over a month ago, he hit me up and he was like, "Hey, you know this guy Ty?" And um, he he recommended that. Um, that I come over and catch up with you and Brett hit me up about it and it was in it somehow was in my head So it's just the stars line my friend and I appreciate it and uh, on behalf of the entire water sports industry We appreciate it. Yeah, and appreciate and you man. What you're doing because it's it's a uh, it's great I think that it's uh, definitely fueling the whole water sports world. So thank you There it is guys Ty Openlander the Golden Mike podcast. We'll be right back over 30 years ago, Roswell Marine starred in a garage out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and today it has grown into one of the most recognizable brands on the water worldwide. Most recently, Roswell released their 2019 Ibex Innovation Award-winning set of Roswell R1 Pro Tower speakers, which have been taking the boating world by storm. But let's not forget about all their other audio accessories, subwoofers, and board racks. Before you put your boat back in the water this summer, check out one of their 30 plus dealers around the US and Canada. Be sure to check out their dealer search function on their website. That website's roswellmarine.com. Let me spell it out for you guys, www.roswellmarine.com. Presented by Sea Deck Marine Products, it's the Golden Mike Podcast with the noise of the north, Dano the Mano. Okay, welcome back, amigos. I'm not going to lie, that was definitely heavy, but at the same time, I felt like I got so much perspective on the world, and I think that's important to keep in mind, especially right now when things seem to be at their darkest. I do want to thank Ty for sharing his story with me and with all of you. It was truly eye-opening and important. I do want to thank Brett Cormier for helping us set this up as well. Many of you remember Brett from my early days of this podcast. Brett helped me start and produce the show, 34 episodes. I wouldn't have been able to do this interview without him. Brett, you are the man, and I thank you for letting us set up the studio at your place for this one, my good man. 
All right, and speaking of interviews, I already have a few more recorded, and I'm glad I did that. I can't wait for you guys to hear them all coming soon. I got to talk with Matteo Luzari, who's the host of the Water Ski Podcast. I also got to talk with Glenn Fletcher from O-Town Water Sports. I also got to sit down with members of Team USA, the USA Water Ski Show team at the Wisconsin Think Tank to talk about the then upcoming show ski worlds in Australia. Now, spoiler alert, as many of you already know, they had to cancel show ski worlds this year due to the pandemic. But I still think our conversation is worth a listen. So we'll be putting that one out in the near future as well. And that's pretty much it for the time being. Most of the events I had scheduled are no longer on the calendar. I was actually at the Ron John Beach and Board Fest in Cocoa Beach just a few weeks ago. We got one day into the event and it was cut short and every event since has either been postponed or outright canceled at least through June, maybe even early July. Uh, I've been able to use this time to get some stuff done around the house, dust my water ski collection and all of my wrestling figs off and I'll tell you how crazy things are when someone in my neighborhood is actually throwing out a perfectly good pair of vintage Dick Pope Jr. water skis and that happened. Can you believe what this world is coming to? Don't worry guys, I grabbed those skis and I made sure to give them a good home. They're already clean, they're shined up and hopefully I'll be uh, ripping them around Lake Sawyer here pretty soon. I do want to thank you all for listening and an enormous thank you to the sponsors of this podcast for their continued support. Thanks to SeaDeck Marine Products and Active Water Sports, Boulder Boats, Masterline, Centurion Boats, WSIA, Roswell Marine, O'Brien, Ledwake, Slingshot, Conley, Ronix, Hyperlite, and GoPuck. Behind the scenes, a special thanks to Jane Levy in the office, Arthur Shabashavich on copy, Rich Walsh on the sound, and Brett Cormier Studios, Ty Openlander, you are a legend, my friend, and I thank you so much. That's it. That's all for me, folks. Just a reminder, you can follow me on Facebook at the Golden Mike Podcast, on Instagram at Dano T. Mano. You can message me there or at goldenmike at noiseofthenorth.com. I want to hear from you. I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. As always, I am the noise of the north, 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 Dan of the Mano, and you can hear me next time once again right here on the Golden Mike Podcast.